Support for today's episode is brought to you by Quip. You know, it seems like everyone is going to delivery services where you can get darn near everything delivered. So why not get something that needs to be replaced delivered to your home, right? And what needs to be replaced more than your toothbrush? 80% of us forget to replace our toothbrush on time. So with Quip, you don't have to do that anymore. Quip is a modern oral care brand that designs beautifully simple electric toothbrushes, delivers affordable brush heads every three months to make a healthy brushing routine more simple. They've got smart accessories, simple instruction. So go to tryquip.com slash vocal minority for a free $10 refill. That's tryquip.com quip.com slash vocal minority for a free $10 refill. Hey, what's good? It's your boy MC. Welcome to episode 53 of the Vocal Minority Report. As always, you could have downloaded any podcast in the world, but you're here with us. We appreciate that. Got a great show for you today. Got a great guest. Our guest is Dr. Darnell Hunt. He's the Dean of Social Sciences at UCLA. He was or is the former director of the uh, Ralph J. Bunch Center for African-American Studies there as well. So it's a great conversation we get into. His work covers media, race, so many other things. So we touch on those topics as well as some uh, other stuff about OJ, Bill Cosby, parallels there, fake news. I think you'll really enjoy this. Before we get into that first, I've got to ask you to do that thing, you know, go to Apple Podcast. Leave a rating, review. It really helps us rise up in the ranks. It helps get noticed. The more subscribers we have on Apple Podcasts, the more ratings and the reviews. Very helpful to the show. So if you can do that, really appreciate it. Also, check out the website, The Vocal Minority Report. You can donate there. You can take our survey. You can buy some merch. We're going to add shirts. I promise. I keep saying that, but we have new shirts on the way. You'll also find previous episodes, guest information, tons of stuff. TheVocalMinorityReport.com. Follow us on Twitter at Vocal Report. Like the Facebook page, The Vocal Minority Report. Here's the show. Previously on The Vocal Minority. Are you part of the silent majority? Or are you part of the vocal minority? Attention, please, attention, please. If America can be saved, and I don't know if it's too late, but it'll be through a radio show. Like this, this new thing. This shit here feels like a whole entire world collapse. The Hey, how's it going? This is uh, MC with the Vocal Minority Report. How are you? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Hey, doing well. I, I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Like I said, I had seen you uh, just mention real briefly in that in the Vanity Fair article, and then I from there, you know, you go down the rabbit hole on the uh, internet. I think I'd probably seen you on Tavis Smiley or something, but yeah. I, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. At first, I thought I wanted to talk about more more media with you, but then um, after doing a little bit of research. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of things to get into. So, I, you know, I guess the first things first. How was your vacation? You know, I, I'm in Dallas. You know, the average temperature this week would be 101. 
So I'm already jealous of you. So I'm just curious where a man, yeah. you know, well, it's, uh, it's warm for here. You know, in LA we're spoiled. You know, we're used to seventies. You know, it's like well, the day it got up to about ninety, which is you know kind of hot for us. You know, right time of year anyway. I mean, July is usually the hottest, but even then, it's not like you know Dallas or or where I'm from, the East Coast, DC, where you know in the summertime, you know, you get that ninety five and the ninety something percent humidity. You know, it's like. No doubt, no doubt. Did you, did you go anywhere uh, exotic for a vacation to you know get out of there? Or you not at all. It was all about just trying to recharge the battery. Okay, for okay. Uh, new job. I don't know. If, I, I don't know if I told you, but I, yeah, I'm um, starting as dean of social sciences next week. So I am sort of stepping down as director of the center and as chair of sociology, and I'm packing offices and and getting ready for an onslaught of meetings to get to start next week. So I just had to take the week off just to kind of regroup, you know? Okay, well, that, that's interesting because I, I was going to, one of my first questions was to ask you about the uh, the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies, what that was and consisted of, and then uh, to ask you about sociology, which, well, I mean, I, I still can because, you know, so... I still can because it's going yeah. to be here and I'm, I'm right. going to be affiliated with it and I'll be working with them, but it's just somebody else will be directing. Okay, all right. Okay, and that's a it's a young lady, right? All right. I did see that. I I, I looked. At, I read your newsletter. Oh, I, I okay. I did see that actually. Okay, that's right. Okay, well, good. Congrats to her. Congrats to you. So, of this role. So, oh, well, let's talk about the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies sure. that you're you're leaving, and then I want to get into sociology specifically, and then you know what you were doing, and then and what you're doing now. So the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. Um, Created as the Center for Afro-American Studies in 1969 at UCLA, and it was um, during the period of the rise of Black Studies in America. And UCLA was was sort of um, there at the at the um, forefront of that movement. And the decision to create a center as opposed to a department or a degree program was conscious on the part of UCLA. The idea was we needed to seed the field with research first. Um, and, and, you know, we created the Journal of Black Studies here at UCLA, which moved to, uh, Temple with Malifia Asante, who was one of our early directors. Um, and we also were quite instrumental in the early years, the late 60s, early 70s, of training a lot of, uh, scholars who would go out around the country to start African American Studies programs or Black Studies programs of one sort or another. We had a big grant from Ford Foundation that, um, brought postdocs to Los Angeles to UCLA and a number of notable people kind of came through here over the years. It's kind of really a happening place in terms of African American studies in the early years. Later on, about five years after the creation of the center in 1969 and 1974, the interdepartmental program in Afro-American studies was created, which was the degree program, later uh, had a you know, BA in an MA program, an MAJE program. And then in 2003, I believe it was, we renamed the Bunch Center after Ralph J. Bunch, or the, the Center for African American Studies after Ralph J. Bunch, who, um, you know, among other notable accomplishments, was the first African American to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Martin Luther King, uh, he was valedictorian at UCLA. He was a UCLA student in um, 1927. He graduated. Uh, he started the political science department at um, Howard University after doing his PhD at Harvard. He was one of the first African Americans following Du Bois to do a Harvard at, at, um, to do a PhD at Harvard. So, um, and of course, you know, he, he marched with Martin Luther King, um, Selma March, um, and he was an outspoken, you know, critic of of 
race, um, racial oppression around the world. In fact, he was a, a scholar of, of race and politics um, prior to becoming a, an internationally known statesman when he won the Nobel Prize. Um, and so for us, he embodied kind of what the center was all about, which was engaged scholarship around social justice issues. And that's kind of what the Bund Center has been since its founding as the Center for African American Studies, you know, nearly 50 years ago. I appreciate that that history there. What what is African American studies? I mean, obviously the the name is is self explanatory, but but if if you were describing, you know, what does that mean? Is there is there a broad way to kind of encapsulate that? Yeah. So African American studies, I was mentioning when I was thinking, talking about the history of the center, grew out of the Black Power, Black Struggle movement of the late nineteen sixties, um, with the recognition that conventional academics didn't do a good job, if any job at all, in terms of helping us understand the African-American, you know, condition in this country. Um, and so um, this particular discipline emerged to essentially correct shortcomings and failures of other more traditional disciplines. And it, it was an interdisciplinary discipline, to use that phrase. Okay. It borrowed from, say, sociology, political science, from history, um, from anthropology, from the law, a range of different fields to kind of bring together insights and knowledge to understand the contemporary, historical, and, and future conditions of black people. And, and, and in, a, in a sense, that's what African American Studies is all about. It's, it's very um, interdisciplinary. It is um, uh, sort of forward-thinking in many ways, but it also relies heavily upon history to kind of make sense of um, the lives of black people, you know, the challenges they face, the opportunities, the creative production, the cultural production. All of those things are uh, topics that um, scholars of African-American studies um, will um, sort of uh, focus on. Appreciate you drilling down further on that. So, so with that, do you, you know, because it, it kind of sounds like that history or kind of relates to perhaps what you do with, with the media. American Race on TNT, you know, they, they credit you, you know, your research on that, uh, illustrating the major racial discrepancies in media, preventing diverse stories from being told. So it sounds like the same, the, almost the same kind of thing, not having the representation, but, you know, tr- making sure that, uh, you know, we're, we're, like I said, illustrating that. So w- with that though, I, I guess we'll, I guess we'll start with the, the, the race piece specifically since I, I watched that a little bit and it had me, there's, there's a lot there because, you know, I, I guess maybe we can talk about the the false kind of narrative of of the media and kind of what we're looking at. I, I don't know if that makes makes sense, but but you know, like so in this climate of fake news, where you know, and I got to thinking, well, haven't we lived in that era, or you know, <laughs> haven't we been living that, but just in a kind of opposite way? Obviously, not the way that uh, Trump is meaning, but you know, where like I said, this false narrative. So I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that, where the kind of where we sit from a reflective piece and and how we are viewed currently. That's an interesting um, question. Um, So as someone who studies media, and if you kind of take the long view, um, where we are now is kind of ironic, where we have a president who is challenging the mainstream media and accusing them of circulating fake news because it doesn't support his agenda, his his platform. Um, for black people, of course, we've been in 
right. in this country and elsewhere around the diaspora. I mean, when you're a subjugated people, when you're an oppressed people, um, you're typically going to be um, misrepresented. You're going to be demeaned by the mainstream media. And, and, and in a way, that's kind of what got me into studying media in the first place. Okay. Um, you know, I, I used to, you know, my background as, as, as um, uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate student, I was a journalism major. And I, in my first job, my first real job or major job, was working for um, NBC and, and while sitting in the newsroom um, because of my journalism background, I was a, a management trainee. But what I really wanted to do was news management. I'm sitting in the newsroom in Washington, D.C., and D.C. was the you know, majority African-American city at the time. Most of the on-air talent was, was African-American, but the newsroom was entirely white with the exception of me and this one other brother who was on the assignment desk. Right. And, you know, it was like, I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I, I didn't expect to see that. And moreover, when we have news planning meetings in the morning, we read the Washington Post and decide what the major stories are going to be. They would, um, you know, my, my colleagues who were all white would talk about neighborhoods that I knew were upward, were upper middle class neighborhoods, doctors and attorneys, as if they were the ghetto, you know. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, who, who knew this? No one taught me this in, in journalism school. So I started, you know, reading in my spare time on the weekends and everything I read that was interesting about media and race was written by sociologists. And that's what sort of prompted me to, you know, consider going back to school for a PhD and, you know, leaving NBC and really studying what I was experiencing as, as a worker there. Okay. So I, I, I tell you that long story to say that the whole idea of fake news, it, it's ironic that you would have the president of the United States say that when fake news has been what sort of, um, legitimated the the status quo for so long <laughs> right to people of color and black people in particular so black people are no strangers to fake news i mean we've, we've experienced that forever and we've always had to sort of fight against that with our own counter narratives and so we find ourselves in this really interesting time now where we have social media and we have like movements like black lives matter who can kind of circulate their own news and knowledge about events the mainstream news either don't cover or they frame it in ways that doesn't really capture our truth so yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time with respect to fake news. You, you said something interesting there um, about your your desire to study sociology, and, and one of the initial questions I wanted to ask you was, can you talk about what sociology is, you know, to to a lay person? Can you define that, and then, and maybe what the thought process or why the the, the people you were reading are the sociologists? I guess kind of how important that is. And, it may be echoing what you've already said about, you know, the, the, the reason for the center and all of that, but, but that specific, um, piece of it, because I've often thought that if I was going to go back to school, I would want to be an economist or sociologist because everyone I, I'm into right now is, is one of those, <laughs> you know, and sure. what is sociology and, and, and why is that important to black people specifically as a, uh, a discipline or, um, a field of study? Sociology is, is what we call a social science. And so it is a science in the sense that it is trying to go beyond, say, your opinion or your perspective and to come up with um, a rational explanation for the things we observe, the phenomena we observe in the social world. And when I say the social world, um, anything that humans can imagine um, exists in the social world. So there's pretty much nothing that sociologists can't study. I mean, we can study hmm. sociology of science. We can study how scientists make discoveries and show how that is a function of 
their social circumstances as much as it, as much as it is a function of their, say, intelligence or, you know, um, particular attributes of the physical world. I mean, humans shape the world they live in by the fact that they think and act and interact with other humans. And so what social scientists do and what sociologists in particular do is try to understand that process, try to understand how things like race, like gender, like class, like sexual orientation, like generation, history, and so forth, shape the way people think, the way they act, you know, what they expect, and how that is likely to result in um, what we call social structures or the patterning of relationships between different groups of society that tends to, you know, uh, provide for some people more power than others. So power, inequality, all these types of things, politics, these are all things that sociologists study. Uh, if I had to sum it up, it's, it's essentially the, the scientific study of humans and the, the civilizations they build. And okay. that, as you might imagine, again, can incorporate pretty much anything you can think of, uh, from music to art to death to dying, um, marriage, um, uh, income, equality, where people live, <laughs> you name it, uh, we study it in sociology. I'm going to now flip back kind of to more of about that special and I'm, I'm bringing it up because it's, it's fresh on my mind. And, and, and I heard, I don't know if you watched that, that American you race. You're talking about the, um, uh, Charles Barkley. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I saw, um, I saw a couple of seconds. Yeah. Okay. Well, th- there's just one in particular in that first episode where he's talking to the, uh, town hall meeting in Baltimore and it, there's some frustration obviously in the crowd. I can't remember if it's, it's, at some point he says that either when he's narrating or he's giving some commentary, he says, you know, he, he says, we got to do better. And, and this is kind of, and this is after he said, he said that and he said a couple of things, you know, in kind of defense of the police that appeared to rub some of the, the people the wrong way. So it, it, but it got me thinking on a larger scale about Bill Cosby then and his comments back in 2004. And I know you've obviously, you know, you, you, I'm sure you have an opinion and you've done some, some, some research on that as well. So in a, in a full circle kind of way, what do you think about that argument as the, the we kind of got to do better and, and the, the mouthpieces in the black community that are coming from, especially those of, I don't want to say privilege, but you know, of, 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 of more means than the, than the average person. So when we're talking about that, Hey, how do you take that argument is the first thing. And then, uh, I guess, yeah, I, we'll start there. How do you take that when you hear that? Well, it's as old as the hills. I mean, it's right. sort of one of those basic um, ideological um, positions within the history of black political thought. I mean, going back to Booker T. Washington, this was all, it was, you know, the whole idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and um, not so much focusing on what the system is doing to you, but how to get ahead within the system. I, I, I thought all the Republicans said that. Go, go ahead. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Booker T. Washington, I mean, that, that, that school of thought is very consistent with what Republicans would say. Right. As opposed to someone like a W.E.B. Du Bois, who was much more, um, you know, who was like the father in many ways of American sociology, uh, is talking about the, the bigger picture and how social structures you know, are conditioning black people to behave in certain types of ways because of limited options and so forth and so on. And, 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 and sort of, you know, kind of a, a black nationalism versus a more integrationist approach whereby you want to become part of the, the, the bigger picture.
see Washington and people who sort of espouse the view that, you know, we got to do better. We just got to work on ourselves in isolation. Um, that was very reassuring to the white power structure. It was like, okay, well, they're not asking anything of us and they're not going to rock the boat. They're not going to challenge us. And we can put them over there, you know, separate but equal and right. that whole type of thinking. Now, I'm not saying that that's where Charles Barkley himself is coming from. Of course. But, um, or, or that that's where he would ultimately have us go. But it, but what he's saying echoes that, 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 that school of thought. And it's an, it's a very old school of thought. It's not anything that's new. And so, the, the Bill Cosby made comments, I think you're referring to the, the Howard commencement ceremony where he was critiquing, um, inner city youth for their names. Right. The, 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 the pound cake and all that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Well, again, I mean, it, it's a very similar type of perspective. It's like respectability politics. You know, it's like, you know, we have to be respectable. We have to present ourselves in certain ways if we're going to be worthy of fuller, you know, participation and have other people to respect us and this, that, and the other, as opposed to, um, you know, well, why are we doing these things in the first place? What is it about society that makes it more likely that we are likely to engage in behaviors that you might describe as self-destructive? And so that, and, and so sociologists generally are interested in that bigger picture, trying to figure out what is it about society as a whole that's causing certain groups to act in certain ways and to, you know, either reap the benefits or endure the, the consequences. Right. And I, cause I think about that a lot, you know, just when we look at the, how varied we are as, you know, black people, people of, of color, of, of, of the numerous colors that, you know, that exist here for non-whites or whatever. But, you know, I mean, I, I, now I feel like I always take it back to economics now or class. Like, I feel like <laughs> that's like my, my bright thing for the past few years is like, man, we're not talking, we're talking about race, but you know, when we're, we're just talking about us. Then, 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 how do we explain that? You know, how do you explain the difference between the burbs and the inner city and the, the whatever the, the the two parent household? So, I, that's extremely interesting. I probably have to have you back on to maybe delve into that um, a, a little deeper. I want to talk about Bill Cosby a little more though, from the perspective of the case and you know, again now the mistrial. And kind of how that looks in the media, in the reporting, because that's a very interesting story, you know, where obviously his side would, would say it's, it's race related. And I, you know, in, 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 in my heart of hearts, as a, <laughs> I feel that way, like, man, I always trying to cut a brother down, you know, but then I'm also like, yeah, but if you listen to that deposition, you know, or, or, or th- then I think it's pretty evident that something, whatever. So people have their opinions, but I, I guess just from an overall societal, thing from a legacy from how that represents us you, you know just kind of where, where do you fall on uh, him and his 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 ultimate legacy and, and even the, the the trials and where he stands today well you know um i wrote a book on the oj simpson case and i think there's some interesting parallels between um kind of um the trajectory of of that case and, and bill cosby even though the, the allegations are different I mean, the, right the, right the simpson case was
But he did it though, right? That you know, it, it's got it's captured the attention of America, and it, there appear to be there appears to be this racial divide in terms of how people are seeing this. In uh, in the Cosby case, I think I think there's a lot of ambivalence in the black community. I mean, I think that as you mentioned earlier about his you know his his statements going back to the 2004 Howard commencement, you know that rankled feathers of some blacks who felt that he was blaming the victim, like you're blaming us for you know being who we are in, in a racist, sexist America, you know. Right. Uh, and and you know why don't you focus more on what's wrong with America than telling us that you know our name is not right or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, again, a, a very privileged person making these statements. Um, so I think that there was that. But on the other hand, you know, he's like this huge philanthropist who's, you know, given millions of dollars to, to black causes, um, you know, um, as, as a television personality. I mean, he was like, um, he was the Sydney Portier of, of television when it came to black people. You know, um, you know I Spy was, was a, a groundbreaking show in the early 60s. It was really the first major African, you know, American lead role in, in a television drama. Uh, of course, the Cosby show in 1984, when it debuted, changed television forever in many ways. And a lot of the black people working, who worked in Hollywood over the last couple of decades, got their start in connection with the Cosby show. Right. It was also kind of feeding the pipeline for future people to, to work in the industry. So, you know, a lot of great things, but, you know, um, if what people are saying uh, what all the women are saying is true. I mean, that's obviously detestable. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think his legacy will, will forever be, um, tainted regardless of how all these trials work out. But, um, you know, I think in the black community that there's probably going to be a lot of ambivalence about, about this. I mean, I think people on the one hand will, will recognize him as the artist, as the philanthropist and all the things he's accomplished, even as, you know, in his personal life, if indeed all of this you know, happened, you know, he's someone, you know, who is, um, you know, you cannot hold him in, in esteem the way you did in the past. You know, I always think about the, the Woody Allen comparison. Obviously, I'm not the first one to, to make this. And, and and that's different because, to my knowledge, Woody was never charged with an actual crime and obviously certain right. what's prosecuted. And so, I mean, maybe it's Roman Polanski. I mean, there's several people that, you know, that, that people we could throw out there. But, you know, it, it, when I listen to, you know, I listen to talk radio and, and I listen to a lot of stuff and it's, you know, generally white host or white guys giving their opinion. Nothing wrong with that, but it's also, but they speak for us as, or speak for people of color and say, well, you know, I hear black people defending him. And, 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 and that, that always bothers me, you know, the assumption. And, and it is that OJ parallel that, that all black people, you know, are, are, we're all on the side of, of him. But but to that end though, I'm also like you know well I mean, uh, but you know it, it is a hard heart out there for a brother, and I don't want anyone to get away with sexual assault or murder or anything like that. But but you know but but but, but you know that weird that that not a weird feeling, but that feeling that you know you kind of want to <laughs> you want our people to prevail, but 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 also especially if 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 um the big bad you know white patriarchal you know uh, society prosecution whatever is coming down on them so. I don't know that there's really not a question there, but I guess that's more of me talking about my kind of internal dialogue. But then, but I guess, you know, when, when white people see that, it, it kind of makes me feel some type of way, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I think part of the, the burden that we've had to bear as black people is that, you know, unlike white people, you know, when, when a white person kills somebody, everyone doesn't say, oh, look at those white people again, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, if it's a black person, I mean, you know, everyone has a story in black families. You know, something happens, some horrible crime, 
and they don't know who the perpetrator is, and everybody's like, oh God, I hope it's not a black person, I hope it's not a black person, because of course, you know, you know that the whole community is going to be painted with that brush. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that is what's happened to us in the media, that's what happens to us typically in public opinion, this is one of the reasons why the NAACP, when it was formed in, in the early 20th century, one of the first things they did was take issue with Birth of a Nation, the film, and, and throughout their, you know, early years, um, media campaigns were a big part of what they were um, undertaking because they recognized those images affect the way the rest of the country looks at black people, and they assume that all black people are like that, when in fact we know that black people are very diverse. We have a range of different opinions. You know, some of us are more conservative, some of us are more progressive. We tend as a group to be more progressive and liberal than not, but not all of us are. You know? Right. We don't all believe the same things or even worship in the same way. But yet, there are these images that circulate about black people that we're all wrestling with constantly because we are a subordinated group in many ways in, in, in a white supremacist America, you know. So that's just the reality of being black. And, and I think that even in an era after we've had our first black president, this is something that black people are still grappling with. And one of the reasons why we are so attuned to what happens to someone like a Bill Cosby, because we know they're double standards. We know that black people are treated in the same way by the law or by law by law officers that right. people are. So this is something that I think we're all constantly vigilant about. No doubt. Okay, so I know you have your book about OJ, and actually, I, I want to read that because obviously last year with the two, the 30 for 30 and then the FX films, you know, that's all back up. So what, um, and I just had a fight with my dad the other day because I now think that he is guilty having watched those two. I feel that he is guilty. He was an abuser and he did kill her. That's how I feel today. But I also think he should be let out of uh, jail. He shouldn't be in jail in Nevada right now. So do you, can you give kind of a high level thought on, on that? I guess his acquittal and now, um, him, should he, you know, should he be let out? Kind of, what's your, what's your take on OJ having done all that research, you know, 20 years ago and then today? Well, I guess his quick legacy and, and, and freedom or lack thereof. Yeah, wow. Uh, how can I summarize this? Yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I've gone back and forth over the years as to whether or not I feel he did it or didn't do it. Um, I've read every book that was written about the case. Um, part of what I talk about my book are all the books that were written. Um, I also watched pretty much every minute of the live live uh, coverage of the of the case. Right. I videotaped it. I mean, I videotaped that. I recorded all of that. Um, and part of what I was interested in was how the news framing of so-called evidence um, uh, aligned with what I saw with my own eyes when I watched all the testimony, you know, because, you know, you know, journalists are people too, and journalists have their own biases, even if they're trying to be quote-unquote objective reporters, you know, race creeps into it, gender creeps into it, and so part of what, as a sociologist I'm studying, are the ways in which race and gendered ways of seeing shape the way news reporters work. And so I interviewed lots of reporters, you know, while the case was going on, there was only one black reporter in the courtroom, well, let me back up, there was only one black newspaper or news organization allowed in the courtroom, and that was the Los Angeles Sentinel, and and they they were the eyes and ears of the black press, so all the other black papers across the country were getting their news from the courtroom from the Los Angeles Sentinel, Okay. and then there were a few other black reporters who represented major newspapers, and I interviewed all these people, and there were differences of opinions among the journalists, and a lot of it was rooted to race. 
Um, there were clearly some issues with evidence. Um, the LAPD has a notorious history in LA, and I think the I think both of the um, the documentary and the FX fictional account of the case both tapped into kind of the history of race with the LAPD and the LA riots as a backdrop because that was only a few years before the um, before the, the killings and the right. All of that shaped the way obviously the jury uh, processed the information. I think it also shaped what the LAPD actually did in their processing of the case. And I have to be honest, if I was a juror, I probably would have voted to acquit as well, even if I didn't know for sure that he didn't do it. But there was enough reasonable doubt that I, I don't know that I could have, you know, um, you know, found someone guilty given the case that was presented. Now, as for whether he actually did it, I mean, I'll put it this way. I'm not trying to hang out with O.J. Simpson. <laughs> I really would, probably wouldn't be his biggest buddy. Right. Um, I actually did talk to him uh, right after the acquittal. We talked for about two hours, actually. I interviewed him as part of um, part of a piece in the book, and I've run into him in a few on a few occasions over the years. But I mean, it just it's a very it's, it leaves me feeling very unsettled. Um, it was a very um, I think there are lots of unresolved issues. I don't think the prosecution's case was anywhere close to perfect or even answered all the questions. I think there were lots of issues with with evidence that I think neither the documentary nor the the, the fictional account of FX fully get, if you look at all the data, if you read all the books, I mean, I think the documentary does a really, really good job, but um, I'm not surprised that based on your viewing of the documentary and the TV show that you would have just assumed he did it, because they, both of them, if they, if, it, if they weren't based on, um, or didn't rely heavily on books to just assume from the beginning he did it, um, certainly, I think, gave a little bit more weight to those accounts than some of the other accounts, which okay. You know, okay. tried to show why he couldn't have done it or why it doesn't make sense that he did it certainly the way that the prosecutors alleged that he did. So it, it's a very complicated case, and it really is one of those whodunits for the ages, I think, um, And which is one of the reasons, in addition to all the racial, gender, and class issues that came up that make it you know, the quote-unquote trial of the century and something that people are still talking about Twenty something years later. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it spawned you know the, all this new interest, and like I said, I, I almost I got a free OJ shirt because I, I think his all that stuff in Nevada. I mean, it was crazy what happened, but for him to be sentenced on the same the anniversary date and listen to the judge and then the the denial of his uh, parole, you know, that, that was a that was a um, you know a situation he walked into. I mean, he you know he really should have seen that coming, uh, <laughs> right? And, and there was no way once that happened that he was gonna you know. Not be set up the rail, uh, the, the uh, railroad. I mean, the, what is it? What's the thing up the the, the, the uh, river or whatever? Tracks. Yeah, train tracks, right? Yeah, whatever. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that much was pretty, pretty, pretty clear. So I, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the parole hearing. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't granted. Um, I, I don't know, but um, a message was certainly sent in Nevada when he was when he was sentenced after the you know the the um, the incident in the hotel. Yeah, we got you, nigga. That's that was the message that I got. But uh, but anyway, but yeah. Uh, okay, so I guess on that note, um, I'll let you go. But I I, I do want to have you back on though because you brought up something on on the about the riots and the the ninety two and everything. And I know you just uh, did a raid. By the way, I used the term riots because I'm using the well, I was exploring kind of media coverage of the events. I mean, I think the more correct term is actually rebellion. But you know, are you? You know, 
one, I think it's a very, I think that's a very important distinction and one that I might have to use that in my vernacular rebellion as opposed to riot. Cause I don't like the term, okay, you know what? I like that. Okay. So yeah. So, but, but you were talking about the signs of kind of that was imminent in 92 and then perhaps, you know, where we are today, you know, the policing and stuff like that. So I'd love to explore that further with you. And, and then, you know, obviously we, we didn't touch on a lot, tons of media stuff, but the reports you all put out. There's a couple more things I'd like to get into, you know, if we can get you back on. But I, I really appreciate you you're coming on uh, this evening with me or this afternoon with me. And uh, if I could just ask you for one more thing, it's our it's our liner, so we can prove that we had on some uh, very interesting and fascinating people. If you could identify yourself and say that uh, you're a part of the vocal minority, that would be uh, wonderful, and I'll let you go. All right, I'm Darnell Hunt, professor of sociology and African American studies at UCLA, and I'm part of the vocal minority. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that episode, that conversation with uh, Dr. Darnell Hunt. Really fascinating gentleman. Tons of perspective and insight on race media. Obviously, way more about the OJ case than I ever thought. So I can't wait to read that book. He's often quoted and his work and the research they do. We didn't even get into the, the media reporting and those topics. So we'll definitely have him back on and get into topics more related to race and media thanks for listening hope you enjoyed this make sure you go to the vocal minority report.com for previous episodes guest info everything else there like subscribe tell a friend tell a hundred friends to all your facebook friends like our facebook page the vocal minority report go to apple Podcasts, leave a rating review make sure you subscribe shout out to all my soundcloud listeners shout out to everybody who's been there since day one Shout out to everybody who's just now finding about the show. Shout out to everybody who listens to the show. Really appreciate it. You're all a part of the vocal minority. Appreciate you staying with us. We'll be back next week with episode 54. And I think what I'll do is do a replay of our episode, the Dallas episode, where we talked to uh, local reporter Rebecca Lopez in Dallas. And we talked to Lieutenant Thomas Glover, who is president of the Dallas Black Police Association. So I think I'm going to put that episode out on Sunday which if you listen to this podcast, it doesn't matter what the day it is. But anyway, so look for two episodes coming out here in the next week. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, Quip. Go to triquip.com slash vocal minority. That's triquip.com slash vocal minority for your free $10 off of your refill. We'll holla at you next episode. All power to the people. Peace. This has been a Vocal Neighbors production.